All right. Uh, so, so we are live here. Welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of Rev War Revelry. Uh, thank you all for taking the time to come join us uh, this evening. I know we were off two weeks ago. Uh, a bunch of us were on different trips, um, but we're pleased to be back here tonight um, to talk about an often overlooked subject, uh, and that's the uh, winter encampment that George Washington has uh, in Middlebrook, New Jersey. Um, and uh, we're going to be joined tonight by our, our, our friend and guest here, Paul Soltis, uh, who's uh, uh, one of the interpretive rangers up there at the, with the State Historic or the State Park Service up there. Um, so I'll go ahead and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Paul just to introduce himself and, and give you a little background on him um, and, and how he got to the Park Service. But one of the best stories, you know, I got an email from Paul a few months ago uh, about how he heard about Emerging Revolutionary War. And I thought that's a great story. So if you could oh. tell that story too. That'd sure. Be yeah, that's that's great. Well, yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, it's my first time speaking with you all, but having watched and, and seen you know, all your earlier revelries, I, I feel like I've gotten to know all of you already. But um, yeah, my name is Paul. I am, uh, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I, I, I live and grew up in Lawrence Township, which in the 18th century was Maidenhead. And of course, right at the center of that 10 crucial days campaign between Trenton and Princeton. Um, I was just going out on a, on a walk one evening down to the uh, 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 creek nearby my home where one of those delaying tactics skirmishes took place on is that January the, the first or the second the second all right I'm going to be in trouble at Princeton but yes January the second and then the lead up of course then Princeton is the third and uh, uh, I see a gentleman pull over from the side there's a few small little blue signs there actually but you know if no one knew it was there you wouldn't know it and a gentleman pull over and being me I said well I gotta ask how did you find this place? Why are you here? And, uh, and he referred to me, um, Mark's book uh, what, was what he was following. And so I said, well, I want to let you know that, you know, it is getting out there and uh, people, are, people are reading it and exploring on their own, even these places that aren't necessarily major, you know, operation museum attractions, but still where, where there's historic sites preserved. Um, I, I studied at um, the College of William and Mary and uh, my little quip is that, yes, I did the reverse of James Madison, who was unsatisfied with the stodgy established church at William and Mary. And although a Virginia gentry went up to New Jersey and I did the reverse a few hundred years later. Um, at William and Mary, I um, studied in a major in English and um, in the certificate program with the National Institute of American History and Democracy which is uh, basically a minor in Colonial Williamsburg, but a lot of great field trip classes and approaches to public history um, uh, through that program. And I had good fortune while I was still actually a student during my summers um, uh, at William & Mary, I started working as a seasonal employee for our state park service here in New Jersey at Rockingham State Historic Site, which is Washington's final wartime headquarters outside Princeton uh, from the, in the roughly the fall of 1783. While Congress is meeting in Princeton, Washington is summoned to join them and stays at this house outside town. And it's while he's there that the Treaty of Paris is formally agreed. And then the news reaches America as well that the Treaty of Paris has been, the definitive treaty has been formally agreed. And Washington composes his farewell orders to the armies of the United States. 
And then after various other kind of interludes, um, uh, I guess already about over three years ago, I took, I was able to take this position as the State Park Services historian for Wallace House and Old Dutch Parsonage. The mark is standing in the cold, uh, Christmas in July, as I called it, uh, at, at the Wallace House right now uh, in Somerville. And then just sort of adjacent to it, as well as another historic home, the Old Dutch Parsonage. The Old Dutch Parsonage stands from 1751 the Wallace House built really in the opening years of the Revolutionary War and, and the State Park Service with support from our Wallace House and Old Dutch Parsonage Association uh, looks after those today. And as one last little uh, royal uh, uh, thing, what we just observed was our jubilee. Uh, the Wallace House began as a historic house museum in 1897. And you can't make this up. The, the newspaper had on one side Wallace House dedicated and on the other side Dutch Reformed Church preaches on Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. And so that's what we use as our inspiration for our 125th anniversary in June. Uh, we had the anniversary of the House's Museum and uh, uh, of course, Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee. So we'll step up there. So yes, from Mary. William and Mary, I, I, I'm a little bit of an unlikely revolutionary war royalist historian, but I, yeah, I, I think the, the interplay is fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I have to say, yeah, Princeton's, uh... Uh, the William and Mary of the North. So there you go. <laughs> but uh, oh, oh, yes. Well, we're in we're in good company because very that, good, very good. Yes, of course. Of course. Too, you know, George Washington got his surveyor's license. Of course, of course. William Mary, so the closest thing to an alma mater. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I did mention though I am not the most famous Lawrence Township alumnus of William and Mary. Mr. John Stewart has me beat there in that category. <laughs> And now for the revelry, I'm told you have a special oh, yes. uh, tonight here. And as I am safely off um, the property of our state parks, I have brought along my, my rev or revelry drink, which is an ironbound hard cider, um, uh, 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 a farm and cidery up in Huntington County, New Jersey, which is reviving the historic heritage breeds of the apple trees, which um, at least supposedly George Washington claimed were his very favorite. Uh, but what is definitely true behind it is that New Jersey was a center of apple orchards and as a result, apple cider, especially in the 18th century in the American Revolution. And although General Washington was very proud Virginian, he conceded New Jersey had the best cider. So that was not a compliment given lightly. So to make it really New Jersey, I've got their Devil's Harvest, which kind of brings some uh, cranberries and, and taste of the pine barrens into it. So that's my, well, that's my, Jersey, my Jersey drink. Yeah, I know after Washington across the Delaware, you know, one of the anecdotes is when they get to uh, Birmingham and he splits his army into, he, he mm -hmm. has a cider uh, along the way. Sure, so. sure, sure. In there, so that's great. So. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, no. Um, uh, so, yeah, so uh, in talking about the 10 crucial days, actually, is, is okay. the perfect way into this, because I think... Um, sure. You know, Washington usually, and you know, my book included, you know, you, you talk about the Battle of Princeton after mm -hmm. the uh, victories at Princeton. Washington heads off, uh, goes to Morristown, um, uh, and that's kind of where the, the story stops. Uh, mm -hmm. most. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not the end of anything. Uh, of things are just not. ready in, uh, in New Jersey. Um, and although they originally go to Morristown, uh, later that, well, it's really that spring and summer, right? They start heading down and they're going to, right. it's the first time that Washington's army is going to end up at Middlebrook. That's right. 
Sure. And so, yeah, just to introduce what is, you know, this term we use, Middle Brook, um, even to, to local people in Somerset County, New Jersey, might be, is kind of an unknown term. There is a waterway called the Middle Brook that flows into um, the Raritan River. And there was at one time a village of Middle Brook that was sort of a twin village with the village of Boundbrook. And since that time, they have grown together into a single borough of Boundbrook, still a pretty small town, but even smaller village at that time. Um, but although there was one settlement and one waterway, that was also a term used to refer to this larger kind of central Somerset County, New Jersey area. And yes, although I use the term the Middlebrook Cantonment to really refer to the winter of 78 to 79, which is our main focus at the Wallace House, as that is the winter when Washington was headquartered here. Um, really, Middlebrook enters the Revolutionary War either through First Middlebrook or Little Middlebrook, right? That, win that winter and spring immediately following the 10 Crucial Days campaign. So following the, the 10 Crucial Days, Washington sort of assesses whether or not to proceed with the attack, I guess, really into New Brunswick or to kind of, you know, take the win and, uh, and head up and he decides to take the win. And he passes through probably at least the region of what is today called Somerville. Um, it was not yet a town um, where the Wallace House sits. It was just the open country there. In fact, there was no town of Somerville because the Somerset County Courthouse was still to the south in what's today called Millstone. And it would take that um, uh, uh, Colonel Simcoe to burn the Somerset County Courthouse. And it was later relocated in the area that eventually the town of Somerville grew around. So even, even Somerville has a, a, is caused by the revolution, but, but it's not really a town yet. It's, it's just the larger Middlebrook region. But yeah, so in, in January of 77, following the Battle of Princeton, Washington with his army will march through this region. There are a few stones, interestingly, in the town of Somerville today that may or may not mark exactly the route, but, but are, are, are interesting in that they speak to this larger event. And then um, really it'll be the spring, early June, when Washington then returns at least himself to this region from Morristown. And this is the period yeah, variously called either the first Middlebrook camp or the little Middlebrook camp. Um, uh, and this New Jersey State Park Service actually does include a Washington Rock State Park, which is a promontory sort of overlook that from which one can see from the Watchung Mountains out to New York City, out to Staten Island, and really out to New York Harbor. And this is in the region where Washington would have an, an outdoor headquarters during that early summer period. Um, as they're kind of assessing what the what the year 1777 will hold, so that is the that's the that's the first Middlebrook. Yeah, and I think one of the most famous things I've heard about that is you know it's during that that summer 1777 when the uh, Betsy Ross flag is yes. uh -huh. uh, adopted, and, and so that's where they they yes. first the, the Betsy Ross flag, the American flag. Yes. So we, yes, we would use, yes, we would use the Francis Hopkinson flag is the one we identify and not just because he's a New Jersey man too, but uh, yes, yeah, so, so, so it'll be, there is a, um, uh, a privately run kind of park run by a group called the Washington Campground Association, which preserves another little patch that, um, uh, that was part of the camp during that, that, that May to June period. And uh, it was basically where Washington was if you will, when Congress adopted the Flag Day resolution that you know years later would become the, the basis of Flag Day on June the 14th, 1777. Oh. And it is, it, it is, we believe, where then that Francis Hopkinson designed flag, 
was first flown in an official capacity with the army. And uh, they do have special permission to fly the Francis Hopkinson flag, I think by an act of Congress, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year. And they have a very long running reading of the Declaration of Independence uh, on that site too, beneath the flagpole um, on the 4th of July proper every year. So that's the Washington Campground Association and a, a little, a, a part of the larger Watchung Mountains region. Or, okay. the Blue, or the Blue Hills, as they're sometimes called in the 18th century. Um, uh, yeah, no, the, uh, and what's the difference between the Hop, Hopkinson flag and the Betsy Ross flag? Is it like the star alignment or something? Or? Yeah, the Hopkinson flag would be the, the um, sort of grid arrangement, okay. whereas Betsy Ross flag, do I say, usually refers to the, you know, kind of the circle arrangement. And, yeah. uh, Interesting. Uh, yeah, so. And, uh, and how far is Washington Rock from uh, Somerville, I guess? Oh, um, just a few miles. Um, okay. Yeah, it's about 15 minutes driving. Um, probably maybe about 10 miles off the top of my head. But yeah, yeah it's um, the, the, the town there is called Greenbrook, but basically it's on the top. And it's, it's today run with the Somerset County Park Commission. So it's sort of attached to a much larger um, Washington Valley, appropriately called uh, a kind of preserved woodland. So it makes for a neat spot that is both a, a really interesting, you know, beautiful view, kind of just a great scenic pullover for anyone. But then also that when you really start to dive into the, the Revolutionary War history that, that it contains also becomes a, a really great spot. Um, what about uh, when Washington is there in 77, is he staying at the Wallace house or is he? he is, he's not. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. Yes. So, so what I, you know, what we really directly interpret at Wallace House is um, Washington's headquarters, the winter of 78 to 79. And this will be, of course, the winter after, you know, we're kind of squeezed in between those, those two um, uh, winters, the earlier winter at Valley Forge, and then the following winter is Jockey Hollow at Morristown. This is the Middlebrook cantonment in between those two. And uh, this one is planned, uh, uh, you know, much more deliberately, much more in advance. There is no Christmas night crossing that throws off that winter. And so this will be basically around the fall of 1778. They choose the region of the Middlebrook um, as the winter camp. And there's all kinds of discussions um, and reasons to why. Um, uh, the, you know, the one I hear most often is, well, okay, it's close enough to New York to monitor the British who have now consolidated there following the Battle of Monmouth and all that, that summer campaign, but is also far enough away with the mountains as a defense that it can be you know, retreat or, or defenses there if necessary. What I never liked about that though, is we use the same exact reason for Morristown the following winter. Well, they're there because it's close to New York, but far enough in the mountains. So, so what's the difference here? And, um, and actually one of the most recent kind of new, it's, it's an understudied for sure, went part of the American Revolutionary War. Really the, the most recent and until recently kind of um, serious study was a, a dissertation circa kind of 1950s. Um, which is you know, really great that we have at least that, but was this kind of something that's sorely needing update and, and further research. And I think what's exciting is now that that new research is beginning. And um, one of them is, uh, uh, I think he's on faculty now at Rutgers Newark, but a, a historian called Dr. Stephen Elliott, who, who, who just recently did a book on all the winter camps, but it includes a chapter on Middlebrook that at least to me, gave me really good new insights and included for the first time, at least that I had seen it, not maybe others have seen it before me, but um, Nathaniel Green's considerations of supply lines is part of that winter camp as well. 
roughly, and I'll, I know you have experts on Valley Forge on your team, so I could get in trouble, but roughly my understanding, Valley Forge was a good military strategic point because it was off all the roads, so it was safe. However, it was poor logistically because it was off all the roads, so you couldn't get supplies there. And, and so very intentionally selecting this Middlebrook region, as opposed to like um, uh, the Hudson Valley Islands or somewhere around there, they were close to Trenton, which was a major supply depot for the Continental Army. And so it, it, it basically provided that additional benefit. So that's kind of one of the reasons then why Middlebrook. And then the following summer, the military situation changes where Somerset County is now more exposed to the British. And so a relocation for the next winter up at, up at Jockey Hollow, Morristown, um, makes sense by that. So that's that's a very rough idea and relying on the scholarship of others, I wanna make sure I'm fully crediting. But um, what is exciting is, is we are kind of doing new research and new scholarship broadly speaking right now that I think will only kind of uh, increase as we get towards those big anniversaries. 2026, of course, for New Jersey's first constitution and the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence, but then also 28 to 29 for the Middlebrook camps and, and Washington's headquarters here. Yeah, no, I, I, and I gotta say, yeah, I think, I think Middlebrook's gotta be the most uh, uh, underrepresented <laughs> of all the, uh, the different. Uh, yeah, I'll say, and one of the, one of the kind of names for it is the forgotten cantonment. I don't quite like that just because I say, well, then, then why do you remember it? But uh, I like the successful cantonment. But yeah, one of the reasons, and, and this also, I think many others have, have kind of observed, but including my predecessor, who was the longtime historian of record and, and curator at the Wallace House and Old Dutch Parsonage, Jim Kurtzenberger, um, a lot of the materials um, I received from him, you know, you others have said, one of the reasons understudied is perhaps the lack of drama, the lack of major hardship and suffering. So whereas at Valley Forge, you of course have the the major supply shortages, the major um, issues with illness, the, 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 then the disciplinary you know, turnaround with von Steuben, or whereas at Morristown, you have the uh, uh, major winter weather, the worst winter of probably, if not the Revolutionary War, uh, perhaps of all the 18th century in, in British North America or, or the future United States. So, um, and Middlebrook then as a result, kind of being relatively successful because of both they correct what they can correct. They correct a lot of the you know, sort of human errors at Valley Forge. And they also avoid by the accident of nature, the, the severe hardships that will come the following winter at Jockey Hollow. It is a relatively mild winter. There are a few records of, uh, of kind of traces of snow, but nothing like you know, what, the, what the winter following would, would present. So, so sort of on those both fronts, they have a relatively peaceful winter. And then the explanation being, well, perhaps, you know, historians most often tend to those moments of drama and, and, and chaos, right, you know, the, you know where, where the drama occurs and, and Middlebrook being a relatively successful winter camp got less attention, um, you know, for whatever that's worth to say, hey, you know, and we'll, let's see what we can do from here to, to learn and study it. On the other level, uh, you know, in terms of a preservation point of view, which you're already kind of seeing is in an interesting way, the scholarship and the preservation kind of go hand in hand. Um, although I, I don't want to say it's not preserved because I think that dismisses a lot of really great historic resources that do survive. But you know, there is not a single, uh, as there is of course a National Historical Park for Valley Forge or for Morristown. Um, in uh, we have all these sort of little pockets um, that that coexist and live right. Even you know you can see the picture behind you. That's not even 20th or later 20th century spread. Those are colonial revival sort of 1910s houses 
that border the old Wallace House, but it is, it sits right now in a private residential neighborhood, which is different, but I think it's kind of cool. It, it, it kind of adds a, a new perspective. And, um, and as I say, it is, uh, New Jersey is notorious for home rule. New Jersey is the home rule state where we have 565 municipalities and even more school districts for every little town and village and borough. And uh, in a way that's reflected in the heritage landscape too. So instead of one big national park, what we have are five surviving historic houses. We informally call ourselves the five generals houses. These homes were all used by generals as their headquarters. The Wallace house is the only one that belongs to the state of New Jersey. The other four are all either in, in local municipalities or, or, or county government and run by private historical organizations separately. And then we also have those kind of landscape areas like Washington Rock State Park or, or, or a few others that um, are historic features in the grounds, you know, basically that, that preserve and tell the story. So um, yes, one can look at it and be disappointed, but I prefer to kind of look and see, well, this is kind of an interesting where the, the surviving landscape actually kind of teaches us a little bit about how it all came to be and why is this place so distinct from, from some of those other, other kind of uh, 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 stories. You know, the, the preservation history is fascinating in its own right there. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. The, uh, what are and the, the chicken and egg is, you know, well, do they not preserve it all intact because there wasn't scholarship or has there not been scholarship because there's no big national park, you know, but uh, uh, so, well, you know, <laughs> but it makes it uniquely New Jersey, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. What are the, uh, what are the other four? Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. So when I talk about our five generals or our Middlebrook consortium, um, they include um, the Wallace House, of course, is Washington's headquarters, uh, the commander in chief's headquarters. Um, then going down the next, the larger township is Bridgewater Township, and that includes um, the Van Vechten House, uh, a, a Dutch American historic home, which was headquarters to General Nathaniel Green. It is there that General Green has um, what is called a little frisk in his own writings. He talks about General Washington coming to visit for a dance in March of 79. And General Washington will dance near on three hours without once setting down with Mrs. Green, Kitty Green, who's 25 years old. Uh, and you know, this, is, this is General Green writing about it. I don't think there's anything untoward going on, but it, it shows you that you get, you know, as, as you all as Revolutionary War historians know, not the Washington of the presidential years, but the, the vigorous and active Washington of the, of the Revolutionary War. Today, that is the headquarters of the Somerset County Historical Society. So they interpret the Revolutionary War history and they also use it as their house, their library and archives for the whole history of Somerset County. Uh, if we follow down the road, we'd reach the Van Horn House, um, which overlooks what is now TD Bank Ballpark, interestingly, um, uh, home of a minor league baseball team, which is currently affiliated with the New York Yankees and uh, the Somerset Patriots appropriately. And uh, the Van Horn House was Lord Sterling's headquarters. Uh, the, the interesting connection there being that Lord Sterling will basically deputize for Washington when he leaves camp for an interlude in Philadelphia in January, December to January of 1779. Uh, Lord Sterling had his own home kind of nearby Basking Ridge. So uh, I, that's another interesting question to me. I don't know why it was felt necessary for him to accommodate himself in a rented headquarters, but maybe that 10 miles even was a difference. But but so he's kind of the localest, at least, of these five generals. And then following the Raritan River, we then reach Boundbrook, and now on the south side, what is called South Boundbrook, and there you'll find the Abraham Stocks House, which was headquarters for Baron von Steuben, 
uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the friends of the Abraham Stotts House interpret that as a as a full historic house museum, and and do a really neat job there, and also organize a reenacting event of of a campaign from that first Middlebrook, from April of seventy seven, uh, the Battle of Boundbrook, um, which which they they organized kind of a neat uh, uh, encampment and reenactment in April, and then that's the Middlebrook Cantonment proper. The satellite of the Middlebrook Cantonment was the Pluckman Cantonment in Bedminster Township, and that was the headquarters for the artillery. It was also there that the artillery, for the first time, set up a an academy, which you know we claim as the the first military academy of the United States Army, the the, the forerunner in that sense as as a as a full kind of a, a training area. The academy was the host in February of seventy nine to a ball to celebrate the first anniversary of the French alliance. Uh, so of course the alliance was made while they were at Valley Forge, but you know, that news took a while to reach the United States that an alliance had been made. So more uh, uh, close to the date, they had a, a first, a, a one year anniversary of the alliance. And that of course featured these kind of 18th century fireworks and illuminations and Washington attended. So that was up at the Pluckman cantonment. The, the, can the site of the cantonment itself is, is, is is pretty much uh, developed over, although there are some preserved archaeological sites of interest. And that story is really told by the um, Jacobus Vanderveer House and Museum, which was Knox's headquarters up in Bedminster Township. And so those that kind of network of five homes, four along the main Middlebrook corridor, and then one up to the north in Bedminster Township, um, uh, all, all kind of preserve and, and, and interpret as well. The, the, the combined aspects of that Middlebrook cantonment as a whole. Yeah, that's interesting that those, uh, those homes still exist, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's interesting, you know, but uh, it's cool, but you know, but what is nice is, you know, although they're all five, you know, organizations, um, obviously the history complements and also the, the, the work today complements. And so, so we, we work together um, yeah, and I'm hoping especially to do even more perhaps as we approach, you know, those big anniversary events, but, uh, do you all do you all do tours of like all five or something like that? There or? is appropriately on uh, President's Day weekend, the Sunday preceding President's Day, uh, is the five generals tour, which the Heritage Trail Association runs and uh, and does you know a, a, a kind of neat a neat bus tour. It's at a pretty fast clip. You know you got to get through five houses, uh, uh, but but they they do a great job coordinating that. And hopefully next you know the next step is is to then figure out well, okay how do we either scale that event up or or bring in other opportunities for you know people to explore on their own as well and and kind of uh, make these connections between the among these these five historic homes so yes it's there and you know like everyone <laughs> we're working together to see well okay what's the next you know how can how can we make that even more but but at least at present and for a long time running the heritage trail association have, have taken the lead on on coordinating that uh that annual bus tour that's, yeah, that's fantastic it's great to see yeah even though they're different uh entities uh yeah yeah you know it, i know it takes a lot to to work together among different sites so that's uh that's fantastic uh tell us a little bit about uh, uh your site the okay, sure so you got uh the wallace house and the parsonage and they that's were right during the uh containment so yeah sure so the wallace house um, itself is really built in the opening years of the Revolutionary War. Um, we believe it is the largest home built during wartime in New Jersey, not standing, but built during the war, because not a lot of people are building at all, let alone on such a large scale. 
And the, the you know, interesting element of it is why is there a home built here? John Wallace um, was a merchant, a Scot Scottish emigrant who first arrived in Newport and then really established himself in Philadelphia, married into um, uh, the Maddox family of Philadelphia, Mary Maddox and became Mrs. Wallace. And in the opening years of the Revolutionary War, he um, more or less wanted to avoid the conflict. Uh, he's not, at least as far as we can tell, not quite an outright loyalist, um, but uh, although, you know, many of his peers were, you know, as Scottish merchants in the city of Philadelphia, they were doing quite well with the British trading network. There was no reason to mess it up. Uh, you know, he doesn't seem to have been quite active as a loyalist, but obviously certainly not a supporter of, of war or independence either, at least at the outset. Kind of just was part of that third of the disaffected who wanted nothing to do with the whole thing. He bought this land, about 95 acres in uh, uh, Somerset County, New Jersey. He called it Hope Farm, perhaps hoping to escape the war. And uh, of course, moving to the middle of New Jersey to escape the Revolutionary War was not a, uh, a prescient move on Mr. Wallace's part. Um, but when he, he moves here with him, his wife and his mother-in-law, Mary Maddox, and um, they do bring with them as well, uh, servants in slavery whom they had held in slavery in Philadelphia. We know the names of at least two of them, uh, a woman named Phyllis and a young man named Greg. Um, the even exact numbers um, are not recorded, but you know, important to remember, of course, as we think of the uncertainty of war for all people, only that much more exacerbated for those who, who have no choice, you know, no free choice in, in the direction that, that they'll be made to take. What family or friends in Philadelphia they left behind, you know, um, and, and the uncertainty of when or if they'll ever be able to return. So it's, you know, speaks, of course, that a hugely uh, uncertain moment uh, as this Revolutionary War begins. And basically it is a new house and a nice big house right in the area of this Middlebrook region that Washington chooses for his winter camp. And so the quartermaster's department um, begins the procurement process and as the top house um, selected for the top general. There are negotiations that take place. You know, he's not, it's not a quartering where they knock on the door and take over. Uh, they do negotiate with Mr. Wallace. Uh, and so again, he's, he's, he's obviously not outright loyalist and that, you know, he, he works with them. Uh, you know, he's, he's not offering his house either though. However, it's like an act of patriotic uh, uh, endeavor, but he comes to an agreement by which they will rent the house for $1,000 for the winter camp and the family and Washington's military family will share the house. And so this will become one of those, those kind of shared headquarters. Um, they do, Washington also constructs a temporary kitchen and dining room on the back of the house, which is another area that I'm still learning a lot about that's kind of exciting because apparently there were similar constructions added to the Potts house at Valley Forge the winter earlier and the um, Ford mansion, of course, at Morristown the winter after. So this kind of became a, a custom of Washington's to, to do. Even though it's a large house, it's still not large enough to accommodate the whole range of activity here. Washington himself is here for two weeks initially in December of 78. He'll then leave the camp for a, a, an interlude in Philadelphia for meetings with Congress and his all important reunion for the winter with Martha Washington. And then they'll arrive here together on February the 5th and they'll be in residence together from February the 5th until June the 3rd of 1779. And as with most of these winter camps, it's really a winter spring camp, um, uh, but you know, that's, that's kind of the, you know, the duration of Washington's uh, uh, headquarters here. Uh, one of the one of the trustees of the Crossroads of the American Revolution Association, I thought I'm no good with numbers, but he did the math. And between the Ford Mansion, 
Wallace House, you know, the Ford Mansion at Morristown National Historical Park, the Wallace House here in Somerville, New Jersey, and then Rockingham, the state historic site outside Princeton in, in uh, Kingston, New Jersey today. Um, Washington spends one out of every five nights of the Revolutionary War. Now, that's not even just his nights in New Jersey, that's his nights at these three homes in New Jersey. So, so that's kind of a, an interesting way to really think about the, the duration, if you will, at least, if anything, of his, his, his time in this area. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I'd love to, um, yeah, calculate some of that math to figure out where, because just yes. I'm coming to you all from Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, Mount Vernon is here, and and trying to calculate yeah. the time he actually spends at Mount Vernon versus oh, sure, especially during the Revolutionary War. Yeah, yeah, war during the presidency during the French Indian. I mean, like you calculate the amount of time. He's out doing stuff, and, and you're right, he's traveling constantly throughout the war, but the fact that he spends as much time as he does in, in just these few houses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, we talk about New Jersey as the crossroads of the American Revolution, rightly so, but even, even you can just narrow it down to these three, and you still got a pretty impressive record, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, no, and, and so, and was Wallace, uh, you say, was he still living in the house while they were? He was, yes. So this will be, uh, this will be one of the arrangements where they, they agree to share the house. Was there, I mean, there must have been fear of spying or espionage or anything? Yeah, that's a great question. One that I really need to learn more about. And, you know, when I get like a lot of time, you know, right. Because, right, obviously, you know, as I said, this man is, you know, he's not knocking on the door saying, please, I'd love to offer my home to you, General Washington. But also, obviously, you know, they were comfortable living with him. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's not some kind of fear that, oh, he, this is some kind of covert Scott's agent who's going to be reporting back. No, so at, at least as far as I'm aware at this moment, and I'm always fascinated to learn more, but I, I don't think there's any necessary fear of the Wallaces themselves, primarily John and Mary Wallace and, and his mother-in-law, her mother, Mary Maddox. Um, they, he is certainly concerned about spycraft and espionage during this winter, but much more to do so with, with what's kind of going on of course, in New York proper, but really Washington is concerned about that kind of area around Staten Island and Elizabethtown. Today, it's just called Elizabeth, New Jersey. There's there's some great uh, writing when they're getting ready for that. I mentioned the French, the anniversary of the French Alliance. They're gonna have that big ball up in Bedminster, and uh, Washington is writing to his officers in, in that region, you know, near Staten Island. Hey, this is gonna be a big party. Inevitably, you know, this is not a secret. So keep an eye out, you know, this is, you know, we, we want to make sure that this is not used as some kind of opportunity to just kind of strike at the main camp while all the, all the top generals are, are out, out, you know, are kind of a few miles away. So, so, so certainly, yeah, there is, there's concern around there, but this, as far as I can tell at this moment in, in my, uh, 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 much more to be explored for short studies, there's not necessarily fear that the Wallaces themselves are, are anything to worry about. Uh, interestingly, you did mention, of course, the old Dutch parsonage is the joint historic home that 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 I, you know, this that we look after at this property, kind of by accident. Kind of, they both have their own preservation histories. Whereas the Wallace House was preserved in 1897 as Fort Nicholson's Washington's headquarters, the old Dutch parsonage was um, built in 1751 and was going to be demolished in 1912 to make way for the raised right of way for the Central Jersey Railroad. And it was moved in 1913, about 500 yards, as an effort to um, preserve, to, to save it. Both homes were, were really preserved in separate efforts 
and then in 1947 were donated together to the state of New Jersey, from which time they've been solidly preserved and interpreted together. So they have their distinct histories. However, like any neighbors in the 18th century, when you start to dig, you then see how intertwined they are. And um, uh, the Reverend um, Jacob Ritson Hardenberg, who you know, I would say is most noted for his role as the principal founder and then first president of Queens College, what becomes Rutgers University, with William and Mary, the only of the colonial colleges that excuse the Ivy League and uh, becomes a state university in its respective uh, host. But um, uh, he is a, an active member of the, so unlike Wallace, who's kind of indifferent to the whole thing, he's very much pro-revolutionary. And uh, his stepson, uh, the son of the first minister to live here, and he married the minister's wife again. And so, so he becomes the stepson. That's another revelry story, I guess. But uh, this, uh, Frederick Frelinghuysen, both of them. So the House basically produces two delegates to the Provincial Congress of New Jersey. So before John Witherspoon, as president of Princeton, can sign the Declaration of Independence, he needs instructions from the president of Rutgers, who's meeting in Burlington with the Provincial Congress of New Jersey. And so they, they effectively declare New Jersey an independent state of Great Britain. And then uh, um, Hardenberg remains a wartime politician, whereas Frederick Frelinghuysen enters the, the um, New Jersey militia during the Revolutionary War. I say all that, that is my rabbi way to getting to what you were asking about the relationship then. Well, we know that in uh, like 1782, around that period when Washington is up in the Hudson River Valley, somewhere up in you know, New York State, Martha Washington is traveling to camp as she does. And on one occasion, she sends a note ahead asking if she can stay at the Hardenberg's New York home, stop in for breakfast on her way up. So yes, this is a, uh, a nice visit and she gets a free breakfast, I'm sure, out of, the, out of the deal. But of all the homes along the way, you know, she was looking at her map and so, oh yeah, I know those people, you know, from early. So obviously, you know, I'm not suggesting they were intimate friends or anything, but certainly were, were part of the same social circles during that Middlebrook winter. And apparently at least well enough that of all those homes, Martha Washington stopped there for for breakfast. So, so yes, although he stays, you know, GW, if you will, is here at the big Wallace house. It's the old Dutch parsonage itself that actually has a lot of, of uh, involvement in the revolutionary politics of the, of the period in New Jersey. Yeah, some of the heroes, I guess, uh, from that area, which is kind of cool. Sure, yeah, yeah, you know, it makes for an interesting uh, uh, angle and, and brings in the whole dimensions of religion and of the colonial colleges and how all that that kind of played into the, at least in New Jersey, the um, revolutionary. Yeah, yeah uh, the religious aspect of education mm -hmm. at that time period is huge. Um, sure, sure. And that's that's an essential part. And like I say, you know, as, as William and Mary alumni, William and Mary was a, col a, a, a college in, an, in, a in a colony with an established church. The Church of England was established there. And so the colony sponsors a college to train ministers of that denomination and you're done. New Jersey had no established church. And, and that's what, what allowed for this kind of, at least among Protestant denominations, this kind of whole variety of dissenting groups. And thus you had this really unusual situation with two colonial colleges, um, 15 miles away from each other, you know, uh, on the verge of revolutionary war. The College of New Jersey, later Princeton University, and Queens College, of course, later Rutgers, the state university. And uh, the, the Hardenberg kind of fits in that. And, and both of them will, for the most part, you know, produce students, alumni who are actively involved in, in the American Revolution. Yeah, now. Um, all right. So going back to the Wallace House. Yeah, uh, 
most significant or okay. most thing kind of questions as far as like yeah. You know, when you have when you have uh, you know one minute to try and explain to somebody why does the middle brook uh, I'm sure moment, why does it matter uh, you know what, 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 how, how do you how do you get across the importance of this time sure. washing's doing yeah so for the large for the for the middle brook cantonment as a whole um, you know right what is what is most significant is it's 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 retrospective of course it's, you know be careful not we don't you know they don't know at the time how the war is changing but this is after that big battle of monmouth you know the last major at least you know washington led battle in in the middle northern uh, colonies and states the war is now shifting where washington will mostly be in this northern theater sort of commanding uh, the major action from the south with of course his personal presence for that that singular Yorktown campaign in 1781. Um, and, and speaking to that uh, a moment, Washington will host here at the Wallace House in May of 1779, diplomats of France and Spain, uh, you know, sort of indicating this, this world war, you know, that, that has emerged as, as, the, as, this, um, as the situation changes there. In terms of the historic homes themselves on alone. I just think again, it's 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 kind of by the coincidence of how they've been collected and preserved. But we really get we get New Jersey. You know, we we get this Wallace House, this Scotch merchant from Philadelphia, from that kind of power center. Um, and then we get the old Dutch parsonage, this sort of oriented to the old, you know, it's built 1751. New Netherland is 90 years in the past by that time but this kind of old holdover of New Netherland, the New York, New Jersey region, and, and those kind of twin poles that uh, whether or not Benjamin Franklin said it, the, the barrel tapped at both ends, uh, that, that was and, and in many ways is New Jersey, and, and sort of this, this, this conflict, but also this variety and this you know, creativity and collision that emerges uh, uh, between those two forces. And uh, so together visiting both the Wallace House and Old Dutch Parsonage, as kind of one unit, one really sees this early religious diversity, national diversity that then leads into the, in the colonial period, American higher education, but then also in the war, New Jersey's kind of uniquely divided, uh, uh, but also revolutionary uh, uh, ferment in that period. So that's kind of, at least to me, when I think about these two houses, you know, the, the really neat thing that, that as, as as historic structures they're able to say together. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Now, if if somebody wants to come and visit the sure. site, what are you guys, what are your oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we do offer, um, you, know, you know, the essential staple is the, you know, historic houses tour. And, um, you know, we, we, we more or less offer those year round. Um, at the moment, you know, the, the best is because of it, you know, it's a small operation here is, is either to, um, to call or, or check online for special programs or tours, um, but we can most accommodate most kind of special times if necessary. And the best for that would be um, wallacedutch.eventbrite.com or Facebook at Wallace Dutch for the big tours and programs that you can more or less drop in on. Uh, if you'd like to visit another time, though, usually those are Sunday afternoons. If you want to visit another time, Wednesday through Saturday. Um, uh, uh, just to, to make sure, an email to wallacedutch at dep.nj.gov or a call to 908-725-1015. Uh, 
is the is the best way to uh, 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 avoid disappointment. Although if, if you show up and I'm there, I'm happy to show people around, but to, to make sure you get the really good and, and thorough experience. And then from there, it's, it's a great opportunity as well um, to check in with those other organizations or to even just do on your own kind of a, 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 a tour of that larger Middlebrook region. And then definitely add it on to those, those bigger sites in Trenton to the south and Morristown in the north for a, a pretty neat kind of Revolutionary War uh, corridor here. Yeah, and if uh, people wanted to read more about it, you mentioned that. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, what book was that? Yeah, reading, I thought about that, because I know, and, and right, and yeah, the interesting thing is, of course, it's definitely an underwritten, uh, I don't want to say understudied, because there's, there's definitely a lot of passionate, you know, primarily local historians who have really studied Middlebrook, but the next step, right, translating that into published uh, uh, work and interest. So beyond uh, Carl Prince's work in the 1950s, more recently, there's been a new um, spate, and I would say Stephen Elliott, I think it's called Surviving the Winters, is his book on the whole of the winter camps of the Revolutionary War, and it includes a chapter on Middlebrook, which offers a lot of new insight and also really well-grounded um, insight. The Heritage Trail Association of New Jersey, headquartered at the Van Horn House, um, they have um, in recent years started to sponsor a lot of research on this subject and have recently published the proceedings of their most recent symposium uh, on, on the Middlebrook cantonment. And so that is htanj.org, uh, Heritage Trail Association of New Jersey. Um, if you look up their website, you can find out how to order either digital copy or print copy of their proceedings. And I, I recommend that too as a, as a great published resource. And um, uh, otherwise, you know, that's, that's kind of the secondary scholarship, you know, what's been written. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you can also join us who, who are interested in this subject area and start diving into those primary sources. So, you know, one of my kind of ongoing projects is like many Washington headquarters are able to do, you can, we can look at Washington's papers and put our date frames on and see, well, what's he writing about here? And so that's a great starting point for me, at least, as, as I still try to learn so much more. I, I'd love to get a source book together where we're working together, like our five homes, we all kind of figure out, well, where are the primary sources? Because similar, much as the homes are scattered, so are the documents. There is a lot of good documentation, but you know, it's not just in one shelf somewhere. You know, you got to kind of piece it together across all these different archives. So, so that, yeah. yeah. But but yeah, especially for right now today, if you wanted to read about it, I, I'd say check out those two published book, but also the proceedings, which kind of give you a sense of well, what is going on now? You know, you know among people, primarily in the local area, but um, uh, increasingly, you know, sort of sharing with the with the larger. Um, American Revolution. Uh, what are the areas of study and inquiry right now? Yeah, and, and you talk about those primary sources. Sometimes you find some really interesting stuff. I know when we were just doing our, uh, of course, we're going to be up in uh, Valley Forge and Monmouth in November. Nice, um, nice, yes. And, which really is a great, which of course is directly, you know, the lead into this period, yeah. Correct, yeah. And, uh, but when we were at the uh, the Potts house, you okay. know, we were yeah, the, the the attic of the or the upper level, and uh, I guess they found a, a a letter from John Lawrence about uh, uh, mentioning wow. his head. Uh, wow, wow! And so you can stand there, you can see you know. Oh, that, that's too cool. Yeah, John Lawrence is is also on staff at the Wallace House. It'll be in March though that he leaves his position as aide de camp to Washington, and that's because he takes on a commission from Congress 
to raise a regiment of black troops in his home state of South Carolina. And of course he has the support of Congress for that effort and he reaches South Carolina and the legislature there takes a very different approach, but, but you know, it is, it is, you know, and then one can only imagine, well, obviously we know in March he left to take on that post. So what conversations over the dinner table did he have with Washington? What exactly is this idea of yours? And, and you know, we, we trace Washington's own, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, engagement um, uh, with, with both free and enslaved black forces in the armies of the United States uh, and also the reality of his own holding of slaves, you know, you know, at Mount Vernon and, and during the war, this would be, it's not just Washington here at headquarters, it's William Lee here as too, he has Washington's personal valley, but also his bodyguard as we, we kind of are increasingly understanding. Uh, or where did I go with that? Oh, John Lloyd. But yes, but when you mentioned Potts House as well, um, in terms of sources, again, it was kind of way at the moment, it's not necessarily all one spot, but um, another one I really enjoyed was um, Nancy Lone, I believe his name, who was an historian out of Valley Forge, who also wrote a book following the camp, uh, following the drum about the camp followers with a focus on Valley Forge, but also in, including reference to other winters of the war as well. And that one gave me a lot of neat insight and introduction to um, uh, uh, you. For example, I know at, at the at the Potts House, they're increasingly they're they're looking into Hannah Till, this uh, a, a, a woman who was a cook. She was enslaved at the beginning of the war and attained emancipation from slavery during the course of the war. And she had a child. There are records of her giving birth at the Potts House, and then leaves me then as the interpreter of the Wallace House to figure out, well, where is this child a year later, you know, and, and you know, think about the reality of, of a woman in slavery and in freedom eventually working as a cook in Washington's headquarters and having children and, and, and you know, what, what, what is that, that kind of whole, what, what presence if, is there of, of, you know, a toddler, um, uh, what is this child going through, you know, you know from, from that perspective, so, um, so I do mention that, you know, just as an aside to, to reflect on how, you know, at the moment, at least, we'll get there with the nice big book, but at the moment, at least how, right, there are all these other insights to kind of glean from, from this larger landscape. And, uh, and then it helps me then in turn, bring that from, from the Middlebrook perspective um, to our visitors and, and guests here. Yeah, no, you have a, I mean, that's a, a fan, you have got plenty of time that they're there. Like you said, you can go into, mm -hmm their letters and diaries uh, during that time period and try and glean and, some of that. And if I'll make you know, more, I guess, of a quip than anything, but as we think about these big anniversary years, as I like to say, by all means, I'm hoping, you know, we're looking forward to, to partnering, especially part of the New Jersey effort through Revolution NJ with our historical commission and our crossroads of the American Revolution National Heritage Area, looking at 2026, of course, but as I, I like to say, well, Whatever we don't get done by then, we still get two more years until Washington arrives. So we can, uh, by all means, we'll try our best. And then we got some breathing room. But but I mean that in a, in a, you know not you know not to be cynical at all to be to be the most exciting way to think. All right, you know here's here's kind of this really interesting moment in time to interpret these homes and and what is it that we can do with the interpretation. Of course, the big challenge is also historic preservation. And um, uh, although you know we do belong to the state of New Jersey, the two homes much like state resources and, 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 you know, federal and private resources throughout the country, you know, uh, there are massive challenges too, you know, and, and, and how to, to build those together into that is, is a major, but I think one can only complement the other, increasing our understanding can, can only increase, you know, the, the interest and uh, in the preservation. 
my little hang up, if you see in your picture, there is those stucco chimneys, which uh, I wanted to get the stucco off just for aesthetic reasons. Uh, we should have beautiful red brick. But now I'm learning that it's also really a preservation issue, you know, that the brick is, is, is crumbling underneath and could be a threat. So, so it's fascinating, though. I mean, how, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you know, as anyone who, who kind of works or volunteers in or around these places, you start to, to, to learn and encounter so many other fields of, of study or interest as a result of trying to figure out what, what goes on or what could go on. Um, at yeah, the yeah. Site. I'm hoping, you know, 2026 will give a, you know, you'll, sure, you'll be sure. the, the, well, the as I say, we've got the, from, yeah. uh, in as a Virginian where, yeah, ah, ah. focus heavily, you know, obviously our, our people focus heavily in the early part, but, uh, uh, but, you know, 1781 is really where the war comes in Virginia. Sure, it's a similar situation. Yeah, but no, where truly it is, you know, it's an, it'll, you know, we have, we have a full eight years of Revolutionary War to experience in New Jersey. And, um, and, and it's a massive, yeah, massive component. All right, well, we got, we did get a question about okay. uh, whether um, the uh, Sullivan Clinton expedition. Uh, oh, sure and at the Wallace house and whether they met with Washington there before that, do you know? Yes, yes, no, I do believe that was a major and um, I'm, I'm st still in that process of, of trying to go through a lot of the, the primary sources to get, get some you know, more references to support uh, a lot of observation. But yes, that will, that's a major part of the, the um, deliberations that would take place at the Wallace house is the planning of that expedition. Um, the Sullivan campaign would be a, I guess roughly summer of 1779, um, really brutal campaign against at least the five of the six nations as they'd be, be, be understood at that time of the Iroquois. Um, from Washington's perspective, of course, this is um, um, these um, American Indian nations who had allied with the British were a threat to what you'd call the United States or American settlement along the uh, along up, uh, upstate New York. Um, in retaliation to that uh, uh, threat, however, Washington would launch an, an order, you know, a really brutal campaign that, that affected not only the military of these nations, but also, also the civilians, including villages, including women and children. And, and there's a, you know, another huge part, an element of that, uh, uh, well, the, of the conflict, right? You know, that's so essential to, to this, this, this moment of, uh, of revolutionary war. Uh, it, Related to the Sullivan campaign, Washington also receives a visit from, uh, again, you know, in, in that period called the Delaware Nation or, or a representative of Delaware chiefs. And uh, they would visit the Wallace House en route eventually to um, Philadelphia for, for further deliberations with Congress. And I'm nowhere near expert on this period or, or area either, but my understanding at the moment, at least, is basically this was sort of Congress's attempt to, to as as, as the United States is increasingly targeting um, American Indian nations that had allied with the British to then sort of shore up, if you will, support among those who were either supporting the American cause or at least had not you know, taken a firm side. And, um, and, and it, is, it, is, it is definitely known in, in May of 1779 that those chiefs, the Delaware chiefs, um, visit the Wallace House as part of a ceremonial visit to Middlebrook before then traveling on to, to Philadelphia. Oh, so wow. right, right there, right. We have these these essential, you know, war and peace. You know, the those perhaps promises and realities and 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 all that um, uh, combined in in that effort. Too. I just I can't I can't help but think about all the cultural different. You know, yeah, yeah. 
think about all these different people visiting and uh but another one that definitely you know needs warrants further research to get some good understanding to to this period um yeah. and moment absolutely well uh yeah no paul thank you uh for joining us sure. Uh, folks, make sure you go and uh, check him out at the Wallace House. But if you can't make it there, he of course you're coming on the tour this year, aren't you? I believe. Yes. Yeah. 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 I've been really interested to, to you know since since my uh, discovery along the King's Highway in Maidenhead. Uh, uh, it, it's you know I really enjoy getting to see all the different work that your group is doing and. Uh, uh, it's exciting to see, even though I'm relatively local to that region, to see you know to, to really get to know those places with 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 kind of some some new perspectives and new understandings, um, is always awesome. And of course, Mammoth Battlefield um, State Park is is another great uh, part of our our network of state parks, forests, and historic sites in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So folks, if if you haven't bought your tickets yet, you can go to emergingrevolutionaryward.org. We only have a, a, a few left, I think. Um, but you can join us uh, as we tour. Yeah, we'll be touring. Yeah, the more famous uh, Valley Forge, uh, and you say more famous, but you know, and and there's, everything is local. You know, isn't it crazy how that affects? I remember the first time I went to you know, um, even before I studied at William and Mary, I did the pre-college program that that the NIAD, the Institute of American History and Democracy, offers for high school students. And I was like, really? You, you didn't grow up learning that, you know, Washington crossed the Delaware and in that single moment, you know, the dark ages were transferred into the into the modern free world, you know, so, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, I perhaps, perhaps beyond, uh, <laughs> beyond me, Valley Forge is more famous, but, uh, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating, isn't it? How, how that, yeah, how, how those networks work together. Just Valley Forge and yeah. and, and it's awesome for me. You're reading a work like yours, uh, which I will admit I've not finished, but I'm in progress, and it's it's really it's really cool to see. But you know, places like 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 you say Birmingham, you know that little village, and and I know that's you know a crossroads with a gas station near the airport, and and uh, but but I think that's I think that's in its own way a really cool and interesting interesting way to explore the landscape. So. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, and, and on our tour, we're going to be going by on our way out to Mon between Monmouth and, and Valley Forge, which are, you know, nice. obviously interpreted, we're going to be hitting up some, uh, some, some lesser known sites. Nice, yes. And of course, yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, that whole campaign is a really interesting and yeah. thankfully a well-documented one too. Yeah. Uh, so which makes it easier for us as historians. James McHenry, before he had a fort, he uh, kept a great journal during that campaign. I think he's a big source for Yes, that's what Washington was up to then. But uh, but yeah, no. So so we'll be up there, and, and like I said, Paul will be joining us with his fantastic and uh, and anybody who's interested in learning more about the you know we talked about during Middlebrook, you know the kind of it's becoming a world war at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We got a symposium we're holding in Old Town Alexandria in mm -hmm. September, end of September. We're going to be digging into all the international aspects of the American Revolution and the the impacts and and everything else like that internationally. So uh, and if you mm -hmm. want to out more about that, you can hit up our our website as well. And hopefully we'll get Paul to uh, to to write some blog posts for us. Uh, oh, cool. I, yes. Well, that's the trick, right? Yeah, we got to get the stuff written down. You know, right? <laughs> but yes. No, but it's 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 really great to to see and read all all the work going on. Yeah, we already got a question. Somebody wants to know when your book's coming. Oh. So. oh. <laughs> And I tell you, this is the most foolish thing to say, but I will confide. I've got my title 
for the George Washington, New Jersey book. I have no research or evidence, but hear it out. Washington, Cincinnatus, right? New Jersey, Nova Caesarea, Nova Caesar, Nova Caesarea, New Jersey in Latin. And when they founded it, they used that name Nova Caesarea because the Isle of Jersey in the channel is really a corruption of Caesar, Cincinnatus in Caesarea. Oh. <laughs> that's as far as I've gotten with the book so we'll see <laughs> as you can tell I started the wrong way but it occurred to me on one of those uh one of those walks through this beautiful you know New Jersey landscape Cincinnati, so, <laughs> now no one can take it but uh <laughs> yes but but thanks very much but in, in a more serious way yeah but definitely follow on uh uh Facebook at Wallace Dutch or uh um you know, our, our, our state park services at nj.gov slash DEP slash parks and forests and our, our, our nonprofit uh, friends association who really carry out a lot of the advocacy work and fundraising to make, make a lot of the great stuff at the historic sites happen is wallacehouseassociation.org. And that's the Wallace House and Old Dutch Parsonage Association. So definitely in, in, in the shorter term, uh, that's where, where you'll find much more much more useful information in terms of learning more. All right, fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, two weeks from now, we'll be live with uh, Mark Lender, uh, who's gonna be talking about the, the Conway Cabal. Uh, mm -hmm. help lead us up to our uh, our tour this November. But nice, nice. thank you, Paul, uh, and uh, hope you join us again. And uh, everybody go check out Wallace House while you can. Thank you, and thank you, Mark, and, and all for joining. Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast.